Hey, Dean. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, and as always, thank you for being back, dude. What is new with you this week? Man, uh, everything is is going well, my man. This uh, this past week, you know, we've been doing our weekly podcast, so I feel like you and I have obviously we interact all the time. But your audience has kind of been following my journey. So uh, this past week, as most probably know, uh, was my final week of the mini cut. So really, what I did was I pushed the deficit, I pushed my steps and my training sessions. I mean, I, I've been training at zero RIR for the last three or four weeks, uh, but I really I buried the hatchet essentially this week. I took it to the house, uh, lengthened parcels, everything you could think of. I just threw everything at myself. Not to say that that was the smartest thing. You know, and this is why coaches need coaches. So yeah. one of my mentors, I reached out to him this past week and I was like, dude, I'm trashed. And um, I finished the phase strong to say the least. However, what I did notice was that by the beginning of the week, I started to see like noticeable disruptions in my sleep quality. And this is something both sleep quality and then sleep length. So quality and quantity. And this is something I track very heavily with my aura ring, I'm very dialed into a sleep routine. Uh, my circadian rhythm is very much aligned. Uh, you know, I'm in bed and out by eight o'clock. I put on right. blue lockers as soon as we get off these calls and I'm ready to go. But um, I just noticed that my sleep quality was diminished this week. And that's actually one of the key signs in, in my own biofeedback that mm-hmm. fatigue has accumulated essentially. And that comes from both the diet perspective as well as the training perspective. So I was six weeks in the mini cut. I, I put myself in a deeper deficit. I've been pushing my training the last seven weeks. And so within that, uh, I started to notice that. So two days ago, I, I ended the mini cut. I went into a deload uh, to try to drop off some of the systemic fatigue I was dealing with. And then I also increased my carbon take uh, to help with you know increasing energy, decreasing some stress and some cortisol, and then also filling back out because um, I was super flat at the beginning of the, of the week. So when I took my my photos to end the six-week mini cut, I wanted to do like a, a post essentially to show the beginning and after. But honestly, I was flat and holding water. And my weight was my scale weight. This is the first week. And I've been telling you that my scale week has been like on the money. Every single right. week, it's been a, a targeted loss of 0.5 or, or you know 0.5 to 0.75% per week, every single week on the money, except for this week. And so you know, I think between the poor sleep quality and the high stress, my rate of loss started to stall for the first time this entire mini cut. And despite dropping out calories in this final week, I didn't lose weight. So most people would think, oh, he's not in a deficit, you know, metabolic adaptation or whatever it may be. But really what that is, it's stress hormones. It's uh, increasing cortisol um, from not sleeping enough, from pushing myself harder in terms of the deficit. And then also we have to think about the fact that over the course of a mesocycle training, you know, fatigue increases, but also with that comes training induced edema. So I'm holding some water from the training cycle itself. So I deloaded, I'm increasing carbohydrate content. And then um, I know I'm holding some water. I, I could tell I'm someone that stays fairly dry. I mean, you've seen my photos, obviously you've seen me in person. Um, I had unusual amount of, of subcutaneous uh, fluid retention on okay. me. So I know that within the next couple of days, really what I'm expecting, knowing my body, I have so much data on this. I mean, I've done 30 diets over the years. So uh, I, I can go back into all my files and I've seen this during contest preps. This is really the only time that I've seen this. And so I think that, by the end of this weekend, after I've been feeding up, that I'll actually see what we spoke about recently and what you experienced very much in your own fat loss phase, which is the whoosh effect. So I'm right. sure that I'm going to see you know, a dropping on the scale. I'm going to be able to get a bit, much better gauge on exactly how lean I got this phase. And then I'll take my final photo. So it'll be a little bit projected. It'll probably be six and a half weeks of the mini cut. Um, however, I'm looking forward to being able to do a before and after comparison because from a blood work or a blood, um, you know, or a biomarker perspective, I've made incredible you know, progressions. Like we're talking my, my, um, blood pressure was up to about 128 over 80, which is very elevated for me personally. Now, mind you, anyone out there, keep in mind that we have to compare things to the individual themselves. So inter-individual comparison. So for me, I generally run on under 120 over 75. And so now I'm back down to about 105, uh, 
105 over 75 as of this week. So a noticeable diminishment. My blood glucose is always very good, but um, towards the end of the building phase, I was up to 700 plus grams of carbohydrates. So I was starting to teeter over to that 90 milligrams per deciliter. I'm down this week. I was averaging 81.8, I think when I did my my full weekly. So we'll go with 82 on that. And then my resting heart rate's down, you know, under 50 right now. And generally like in a building phase, it's like 55 to 58 perhaps. Uh, So I'm seeing like a a 10 to 20% uh, improvement in these parameters. And I, I spoke about that last week on your podcast about the fact that we see in the literature, but I've seen this with countless clients because I have so many people that come to me that a lot of times, a lot of people think of me as just a body composition coach, but I really speak on the health front because I also do a mm-hmm. lot of functional nutrition coaching. So that's people with digestive issues. That's people with adrenal issues and especially people with metabolic issues, especially when it comes to like insulin resistance. And right. so a lot of times I'm trying to initiate at least five to 7% weight loss off the bat with certain clients, especially when they're insulin resistant or they have some, some cardiovascular markers that are off, whether that be LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol, triglycerides, things of that sort. And so uh, I've seen some really good improvements in my own you know, obviously parameters, but I've also seen it in other people and we see it in the literature. So it's just reaffirming things because I do like to reinforce a lot of what I see in practice with research, but it's always important to realize that evidence-based coaching is, is a three-pronged approach. It is our experiences as, you know, a practitioner, as a, you know, fitness professional. It's also, you know, the experiences, the preferences, uh, and the abilities of the client that we're working with. And then it is the peer-reviewed literature, the best of the literature. So when you're able to combine all three, like I have anecdotal case studies of clients that I've seen these improvements in. I have my own case studies in terms of myself, and then the hundreds of clients that have taken through these mini cup phases, these primer phases, uh, fat loss phases, and so on and so forth. And then also we have peer-reviewed literature, both on healthy populations or, you know, what we would call like your average sedentary population. But then we also have insulin-resistant, metabolically complex individuals or type 2 diabetics, we have to realize that they don't always apply to every single uh, subsect of the population. But when you have a conglomerate, essentially, of evidence that points in one direction, like weight loss or or fat loss in particular, is going to improve your cardiovascular markers, your uh, insulin sensitivity markers, uh, your blood work, things of that sort, it's a really good indication that that's a good direction to head into. So it's always nice to get some in-the-trenches experience. That's why I keep pushing myself to do these things. Like, I don't need to get leaner. You know, I I believe in walking the walk and and talking the talk. But at the same time, you know, it's really good to always experiment with myself. And then these are things that I take copious notes. You know, I'm very big into data collecting. I, I do it with you. I do it with all my clients, but I also do it on myself. So I'm very into tracking biomarkers, tracking metrics over time, looking at trends and patterns, trying to correlate things together, and then really uh, seeing a trajectory. So I, I know how I respond as an individual, but I also, I've learned things about my clients. I know how you respond with a lot of things. So it's, it's really about being almost like an investigator when you're a coach. You really want to, you know, I always say that I like to peel back the layers of the onion in terms of coaching when I'm working with someone. So, you know, this was just another example of, I knew, I know, you know, for a fact that a healthy body is a responsive body. And I had some, some parameters in terms of my health markers. I wasn't really satisfied with, I was feeling, you know, constantly full. Uh, I was feeling post-meal somnolence, which is like that sleepiness after meals, especially during my building phase. And it was like, all right, let's pull back to be able to launch forward. So I'm looking forward to wrapping up this deload next week. And then looking forward to, uh, to the next phase in terms of uh, what I'll be doing going forward. But other than that, then everything's well. Good, dude. I'm excited to see the end result of the mini cut um, as you drop a bit of water. And it is very good timing for us to talk about the whoosh effect um, and how that comes into play as well. I think it's very valuable what you said. We're like, hey, I cut calories more, but I wasn't seeing changes. But also during those times, like trusting the process, so to speak, where, hey, I know without a doubt I'm in a bigger deficit if I'm truly doing all the things that I need to be doing. Um, <laughs> and so within that, I'm really excited to see what the end result is here. But 
we have quite a topic today. Um, going to be a little bit different than our norm where we've done quite a few Q&As lately where this will be a little bit more of a topic episode, but I'm excited to get into it. Um, so today we're really going to be talking about food quality, essentially, because there is a big debate here, right? We have like the IFYM camp, we have um, the camp who's like very much, we need to only clean foods on a consistent basis, right? We need to always be nailing all our micronutrients. So really like we could call this a great food quality debate. Are all calories created equal when it comes to fat loss? Incredible title that would be. So first and foremost, man, take it away for us. Are all calories created equal? Yeah. So kind of like you hit on, there are many within the nutrition industry who you'll hear make comments like all calories are created equal, or my favorite is a calorie is a calorie. Like when people say that, I'm like, all right, let's really get into these simple, simplistic stories. And really what they try to do, I understand why they do so, but they really simplify things down to the idea that energy balance is all that matters for fat loss. Mm -hmm. So as long as you eat less and you exercise more, you'll succeed on a diet and you'll lose body fat. And statements like all calories are created equal or a calorie is a calorie, are examples of simple stories, essentially. So they're technically truthful, but they aren't useful, nor are they helpful uh, because they're true in theory, but they aren't helpful in practice when your focus is on coaching clients in the real world and like we do, and on helping them to succeed with their fat loss goals. And they aren't locked in this metabolic word. And I often hear like people that are really into research, they're always talking about calories. They're always talking about energy balance. And don't get me wrong, like that is very truthful. That is very accurate. However, we have to realize that there's a difference in the real world than there is in metabolic words where every calorie, you know, these subjects eat is monitored and they have so many, like these are all controlled studies. And we do have, you know, studies that show that, you know, any diet, when you're in a metabolic ward and you're locked away in a chamber, that any diet will work as long as calories are equated and the same percentage deficit is maintained. But the other issue with this approach is that it puts us into different camps. Essentially, what you hit on was we have these two dichotomous camps, essentially. They're at different ends of the spectrum where people, especially nutrition professionals, will argue back and forth about what's more important between quality and quantity when it comes to nutrition, especially when it comes to fat loss. It always seems like whenever it comes to fat loss, like more, most people don't debate when it comes to muscle growth, but when it comes to fat loss, it's always like someone has their camp and they have their ideologies. So we have, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you know, this is a tribalistic industry, unfortunately. And so many will say that calories are all that matter, such as those in the IF, YF, um, you know, if it fits your macros crowd, essentially. And they believe that food quantity is the most important thing. So a lot of times they'll promote the idea that all calories are created equal and thus calories are all that matter for fat loss. And then if we look at the opposite end of the spectrum or the opposite side, we have those who will say calories don't matter. And all that's important is food quality, such as those who are advocates of dietary approaches like your carnivore or your keto, where they'll promote this idea that you almost can't get fat from just eating mostly meat. Like this is a common claim that I hear people make. And I'm almost like, you know, I'm always thrown off by it, but it's, it's these dichotomous viewpoints. They, they put themselves in one camp or the other, and they just argue between each other. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that both quantity of the calories we take in and the quality of the food sources that make up our daily calorie intake are both equally important as yes, like if we look at it from just a theoretical perspective, all calories are created equal. So one calorie from a baked potato is the same as one calorie from a potato chip from just a unit of measurement perspective. But just focusing on the amount of calories that a food provides doesn't tell you anything else. It doesn't tell you about the quality of the food of that food source. It doesn't tell you about its nutrient density. It doesn't tell you about the satiety it provides. It just tells you about the energy content it contains. And nutrition and our dietary approach should never be something that we have to boil down to just all calories are created equal or narrow it down to one thing or another. 
and, and have to pick between either food quantity or quality. As when we really look at proper nutrition, it considers both. And this is really important because if you only consider the quantity of the calories in your food, all you have control over is your body mass, meaning if you lose or gain weight, as the quantity of calories will determine your state of energy balance, which is important. Like that's the first step. However, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that weight change is governed by energy balance. So you can gain or lose fat or gain or lose weight essentially just by nailing a calorie target. But if you want to improve your body composition by gaining muscle and losing fat, if you want to optimize your performance and your recovery, and you want to better your health and how you feel, you need to consider the quality of your food and your macronutrient composition along with the amount of calories that you're taking in. And you also have to realize that your ability to manage your hunger and appetite to stick to your diet and to maintain adequate micronutrient status, which will affect your health and everything else are all governed by your specific macronutrient composition, the quality and nutrient density of the foods your diet is comprised of, and so many other aspects. So it can't just be narrowed down to to just calories. So yes, you know, if we were to just look at it, you asked me this question, energy balance in terms of food quantity matters, but so does, you know, food quality as both play an important role in optimizing our nutrition. Um, when we're looking to improve our body composition, especially within the context of a fat loss phase. And another thing I really want to hit on is because I get a lot of inquiries from other individuals that work with other coaches and they'll tell me about the approach that they're utilizing. And I'm not here, like when I'm in a DM with someone and they're asking me questions, like I'm not here to like rain down on, on your coach's parade, but really like guys in the audience, if you're working with a coach that only focuses on calories and simply gives you a calorie target to hit and sends you on your way without any education or discussion on what your calories should be made up of from a food quality perspective, they're doing you a disservice. As your macronutrient composition, your food quality, and your food choice selection play a massive role in the process of improving your body composition and being able to do so in an approach that you can actually adhere to, which is the most important fundamental aspect. Like, you know, the hierarchy, yes, energy balance is at the top of the high or at the bottom of the hierarchy, but right below that is your adherence and your sustainability. And so we want to be able to ensure that you can actually adhere to and sustain, you know, um, a deficit, especially when it comes to fat loss, because there's always going to be issues or, or there's commonly issues with hunger, a lack of um, you know, energy, and then also a deficiency in micronutrients. And this is most common amongst those who take the type of calories-only dietary approach. So when we only focus on that quantitative aspect, only the numbers, and realize we don't eat numbers, we eat food. And so really, we can't just think about every single client as a calculator. That's just going to be calculating macros or calculating calories, and that's going to be it. Like We can't just think about food by numbers. We need to think about food in terms of its quantity, its quality, its uh, micronutrient density, and all the other aspects and benefits or potential drawbacks that that specific food source provides us with. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, there's there's kind of these camps. There's the calories in, calories out is all that matters camp. And then there's like, hey, keto, and we get, or carnivore, and we get all these benefits from eating liver, or whatever it is. And there is merit to each of those things, right? As you said, like, I almost kind of look at it like a car, right? Where we could say, okay, if you push the gas pedal, you should be moving in a direction or whatever. Almost like how hard you're pushing the gas is the depth of the deficit you're in or how many calories you're taking in. But there's so many other things that need to go into that for it to work well, right? We have to put oil in gas and all of these things as well, where that's very much like the food quality is such an important part of all these different things like um, hormone production, right? Uh, supporting thyroid function, things of that nature that are very much important to getting to where you want to be as well and having a healthy, responsive body. So I think that this that's very nicely summed up. Can you talk us through then kind of the difference in food sources and food quality between sources? 
Absolutely. So before we actually get into the different effects, consuming different quality foods have on our ability to do things such as lose fat, improve our body composition, our metabolism and energy expenditure, our satiety, hunger and appetite levels, our calorie intake and our ability to actually induce and maintain a deficit. I think it's really important to delineate between different levels of both food quality, which is best done by looking at different levels of food processing. As processing foods can turn a high quality, nutrient dense food into a much lower quality and less nutrient dense or maybe nutrient sparse food. And the best way to do this is to look at um, unprocessed versus processed foods is right now, if you actually look at the average American diet, it's made up of 70% processed foods and only 30% whole foods. And right now, if we also like look at other statistics within America, we also have the highest rates of obesity and diet recidivism and weight regain every year. And I'm not saying that the main driver of, of obesity is just food quality or lack of food quality, but because, you know, we have to realize and acknowledge the fact that calories drive weight gain. But if we think about those we work with most, you know, most often, we often see that they're hitting a bottleneck where they fail diet after diet. And oftentimes it's not because they don't know how to track calories or they haven't tried tracking calories in the past, but because of the, the approach they took to dieting was either unsustainable or left them feeling hungry and shitty, which caused them to go off the diet itself. And a recent systematic review and meta-analysis found that between 42 to 61% of adults in general populations around the world report trying to lose weight each and every single year. But you know, see, many are able to lose weight. We know that statistically, like six out of seven people who go on a diet will lose a significant amount of fat. However, we also know that up to 95% will regain what they lost after. So essentially what we're terrible at is maintaining our results. And one area, you know, focusing on food quality can help with is due to its effects on inducing satiety and managing hunger. So if we actually look at like how foods are classified, there's, there's really, um, yeah, I recommend people go and look at this. There's something called the Nova classification system, which essentially categorizes foods based on their level of food processing. And there's four categories they bucket foods into, but I think the most important to focus on for the, you know, for the audience essentially is group one and four. So if we look at group one of the Nova classification system, they're unprocessed foods. So group one is made up of unprocessed foods, which include whole foods that all of us are familiar with. And they're generally from either animal or plant sources. So we have things like animal protein sources, like your meats, your poultry, your fish. We have fruits, vegetables, uh, rice and potatoes. You have whole grains, eggs, uh, things like dairy, nuts, seeds, and legumes. And unprocessed foods or minimally processed foods are those foods which are close to their natural state in terms of their nutritional content or nutritional quality, their appearance. And whole foods generally contain higher protein content, higher fiber content. We're going to talk about this later, but a higher satiety index. They have a greater thermic effect of feeding. And they're also harder to consume, meaning you need to chew them more, which increases satiety as compared to unprocessed foods or to um, in comparison to processed foods. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have group four, which are the processed foods or the ultra processed foods, essentially. And these are foods that are far removed from their natural whole state and contain many added ingredients that are generally not found in our own home kitchen, which we'd use for cooking. And that's why if you look at like the ingredient list, you're going to notice a bunch of things you've never heard of, you know, dyes, additives, uh, emulsifiers, things like that. And so we see that they they contain a lot of added flavors, a lot of added colors, emulsifiers, and other additives, which essentially are, are included into these prepackaged foods or these items to make them more palatable, more appeasing, and more seductive. And ultra-processed foods include things like your prepackaged processed meats, uh, chicken nuggets, burgers, and fries, like anything you essentially would find at a fast food joint, uh, packaged foods, or anything you really find that's in either a box, a bag, or, or has a long shelf life. We have sugar-sweetened um, uh, beverages, but as well as sugar-sweetened um, breakfast cereals. And we have sweet and salty snacks. We have 
you know, baked goods like desserts and pastries, like cookies, cakes, donuts, brownies, stuff like that. And um, overall, their high level of processing makes them highly palatable and highly stimulating, yet they're not satisfying. They're not, you know, satiating. So they're more likely to be overconsumed. And also another aspect that many people overlook, like we often look at like the calorie aspect of them, like, yes, they're more nutri- or they're more energy dense, they're less nutrient dense, meaning they have more calories per gram, yet they have less micronutrients per gram, but they also are, are when they're overconsumed, they're more likely to displace other healthier whole foods, which have the essential vitamins, the minerals, and the cofactors that we need for metabolic processes, including energy production, and then also hormone production. So when we look at like the difference, we see that processed foods are more calorie dense, yet they have much less effect on our satiety and leave us feeling less full unless we overconsume calories, they're more nutrient devoid or sparse and they displace, you know, calories pretty substantially. So often, like when we look at like the American diet, we notice that there's a a lot of common micronutrient deficiencies. And yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because 70% of the diet is ultra processed foods. So you're not even hitting your base minimum of the whole foods that contain the nutrients that you actually need. Now, the same foods can vastly differ um, or, you know, essentially offer vastly different benefits and effects based on their quality and their level of food processing. So if we look at like common whole foods like apples, oranges, peanuts, and corn that many of us consume, they can differ greatly based on the form we purchase and consume. So for example, I'll give you a couple, like I just, just so the audience knows like these different levels of processing. So they can really keep in mind when you go to the grocery store and you either go into the middle aisles and you pick up these items or you go into the, the surrounding perimeter and go more for the whole foods. So for apples, like the whole unprocessed whole version of an apple would, or would be an apple essentially. And then the next level of processing would be applesauce. Another level of processing on top of that would be apple juice. And then a highly processed version would be apple jacks. So the cereal. Then if we look at oranges, you know, the, the whole unprocessed form would be an orange in its peel, which actually has the highest satiety index of all fruit available to us. The next level of processing would be orange juice. And then a highly processed version would be like an orange gummy snack. And, you know, in terms of like peanuts, we have the, the whole food peanut is actually the fr- fresh unshelled peanut. The next, you know, processed version would be things like roasted salted peanuts. Then it'd be peanut oil, uh, skippy peanut butter, chocolate covered peanuts. And then like an ultra processed peanut product would be something like your Reese's peanut butter cup, which literally doesn't, you know, resemble anything from a nutritional perspective that the actual peanut does. And then I think the greatest example of this is corn on the cob, which a lot of people don't realize, like the different levels of processing that corn goes through. So we have corn on the cob, you know, it's, it's a vegetable highly satiating. Then we get to the next level of food processing would be a corn tortilla. So you could use that on tacos or something like that. And then an ultra processed version of corn would be Doritos. And this is because corn is their first ingredient on the list, but there's a laundry list of additives, flavors, and processed ingredients that are added to that corn base to make it an ultra processed, hyperplatable snack. And with each level of food processing, these whole foods get further and further removed from their natural state. And their quality diminishes in terms of how much fullness and micronutrients they provide, yet their energy density or their calorie density increases. So they provide more calories per gram, but less satiety per gram. So really when it comes to the context of the fat loss phase, we're noticing that we're getting less bang for our buck when we're choosing the ultra processed forms as compared to the unprocessed forms of these same exact foods. So if you were to look at it, like if we were only look at like the food source in and of itself, and we were to say, oh, you know, I eat. You know, I have a lot of corn in my diet, but it's an ultra processed form. Like you're not getting any of the micronutrient benefits, the satiety benefits and the hunger management aspect benefits that you could get from just eating it in its whole form. Absolutely, man. So unfortunately, it sounds like you don't count Doritos as a vegetable. Um, (laughs) But I think that is such an important point as well with 
as you're saying again, like it's not to say we have to only eat these very high quality, minimally processed foods, but we do, especially when it comes to maintaining a result, that's one of the biggest challenges I think most people are faced with is they just look at dieting as I'm going to commit to suffering for 12 weeks, right? To where it's, and again, like it's dieting, no matter what is challenging for most people, it's okay if it's hard, but it's like, I'm going to follow like keto for 12 weeks or maybe I'm just going to like follow IF with and just eat extremely low calorie for 12 weeks, or maybe I'm just going to eat strictly whole foods for 12 weeks. And again, like just, I can grind it out for 12 weeks, but after that, if long-term there's not this balance between foods that keep us satiated, um, and allow us to control our calorie intake alongside like potentially working in some of these more calorie dense, less or more processed options, then it does make it just so much harder for us to maintain in the long-term. So I think that's an incredible point you touched on. Something else I've heard you talk about quite a bit is the difference in the thermic effect of feeding between different quality of food sources, does that tie in here at all? 100%. So let's go back to the, the first question that you hit me with. You asked me, are all calories created equal? And yes, all calories are created equal from a unit of energy perspective, mm-hmm. but not all sources of calories are created equal. So they don't offer the same thermic effective feeding, You know, especially from a thermic effective feeding perspective, meaning you know, different foods and different food sources and different levels of food processing, as well as quality of these food sources have a different effect on our energy expenditure or the amount of calories we burn in the process of ingesting them. And this is especially true when we compare whole foods, which are usually single ingredient, single ingredient, minimally processed foods against processed foods, which are refined foods that have a much longer ingredient list. And the more processed a food is, the less of a thermic effect it has in comparison to an unprocessed whole food source. So when you eat whole foods in their unprocessed state, they have a higher thermic effect of feeding. So essentially what ends up happening is you end up netting out less calories from them as compared to their processed counterparts, which affect both the calories in and the calories outside of the energy balance equation. However, what many overlook is the fact that we don't just eat macros like protein, carbs, and fats in isolation. We eat meals, which are a combination of foods. So our food choices in terms of our food quality and the level of processing that those foods go through will also impact the thermic effect of feeding in a meal and thus the amount of calories we burn to digest and absorb these foods. And when we actually look at the you know differences in um, different states of like in the research between different levels of food processing. And we look at meals that are made up of whole unprocessed foods with highly processed foods. We see that whole foods have a higher thermic effect of feeding when compared to processed refined foods. So we burn more calories just through the process of selecting and eating higher quality foods. And one study, I always go back to this, and I know that you and I have discussed this off air before, is there was a study that demonstrates this perfectly. And it really shows the difference in thermic effect of feeding between whole foods and processed foods. And this was done by Barring colleagues, where they took healthy men and women and they put them into a crossover trial where each individual ate two different meals on two separate occasions. So they separated them out on two different days. And in both occasions, they had individuals avoid exercise and come into the lab fasted to get a pre-meal measurement of their resting metabolic rate. And then they provided them with one of two meals. In both conditions, and it's really you know important to note, note this, is that the meals had the same amount of calories and macros. So they were you know calorie and macro equated. However, in one condition, They were given a whole food meal, and in the other condition, they were giving a processed meal. And what's really interesting about this study is that they didn't compare vastly different types of meals besides the level of processing the individual foods had undergone. So basically, they took whole foods and then looked for the highly processed versions of them and then just compared the two of them. So in the whole food meal, it consisted of whole grain bread or multigrain bread, I believe, with real cheddar cheese, while the processed meal consisted of refined white bread and processed sliced cheese, which was kind of like a craft Singles. It's like one of those craft American singles. And so 
what's really interesting about this in in addition to this is that it was super well controlled so they even you know evenly matched the amount of calories from bread and cheese in both conditions so in the whole food meal um, and the processed food meal, both of them came with 60% of calories eaten from the bread source, and then 40% were from the cheese source. So literally the only difference between the two meals was the level of uh, processing and quality of the food sources that were used, not the actual types of foods of the meals in, in the meals themselves. And despite both the whole food and processed foods meal, uh, food meals containing the same amount of calories and macros, the thermic effect of feeding of the whole food meal was 20%, while the thermic effect of the processed meal was 10.7%. So the study found that the amount of calories burned following the ingestion of a meal of processed foods was almost half, so almost 50% lower than a meal containing the same amount of calories from whole food sources. And every time like I, I read this study, I think about two things. I always think about the fact that we generally, like a lot of us that stick to more of a nutrient dense diet. We really don't eat like multi-grain bread and cheese as a meal. You know what I mean? We're eating higher protein, higher fiber. And I always wonder what the post-meal energy expenditure difference would have been if they compared the same processed meal with a, a whole food meal, but a whole food meal that contained high protein, high fiber, and contained, you know, a large serving of like a lean protein. And what's really interesting about that is the, if they had done like a high protein source or a, a, a source of protein, we already know that protein has the highest thermic effect feeding, which is at 20 to 30%. And then what if they had combined it with a complex carb source like a potato, which has a higher fiber content, and then added a serving of either fruit or vegetables on the sides to bump up that fiber and take even more. Then the second thing I've always wondered, and I haven't been able to actually find a direct answer on this, and this is something I've, I've looked in the research on, I just can't find it. And it's something I'd love to get your opinion on actually, Jeremiah, is, you know, if you ever think about like, you look on average, research shows that the thermic effect of feeding accounts for 10% of our total daily energy expenditure. We always see that thrown out when we look at total daily energy expenditure equations, you know, thermic effect of feeding always accounts for 10%. And, you know, in research, we see that certain macros like protein have a higher thermic effect and that certain foods have a higher thermic effect than 10%. So even in this meal, they had a 20% thermic effect feeding just from whole foods. So is this average based on the fact that we're looking at the average populations? Because if it is, it could be confounded by the fact that almost all industrialized Western countries consume over 50% of their calories or their daily calories from ultra processed foods. So that might be reducing our thermic effect feeding. But how about if we stack the deck in our favor and we utilize high protein meals, high, uh, high fiber, food sources, nutrient-dense whole food sources that all have a higher thermic effect, can we raise that average th thermic effect of feeding on a daily basis over 10%? Because I think we could. That's a very interesting insight and not something that I've thought of before. But yeah, where does that 10% number come from? Hmm. Because I have heard a lot of arguments with thermic effect of food, like, hey, the difference it actually makes is negligible. And I think it's more based on like, yeah, it's 10% of your overall metabolic rate. And like maybe a couple percentage decrease here isn't a huge deal. But as you said, that's that's a very good question. And I mean, I, I fully agree. I think that we can, even an anecdote, I mean, the differences we actually see in clients. Now there's so many confounding variables here as well. Like you're probably also, if you're eating more protein, you're probably building more muscle. We're probably improving the way you're training, you probably feel better and are moving more. So all these things go together, but no, man, I, I, I mean, I would fully agree with that take. I definitely think we could probably push it considerably higher than that. And it's interesting that there's not more research done on that actually. I know. And I always wonder about this because of the fact that generally we have to recruit individuals. And often if you look into literature, they're done on 
one of two populations. And I don't want to just generalize it down to this, but when you look at the the majority of the literature, it's either on college-aged you know, uh, students because they're in the semester and they're at the university and they're easy to recruit, but they generally have a shit diet. Let's, let's right. be real with it. You know, even if you hear like, if you hear a Brad Schoenfeld speak about his own college, which he has one of the best master's programs in the entire country, he'll say that the average student that comes in, oftentimes they have to manipulate their diet because even the guys that are resistance trained individuals are consuming about 1.2 grams per kilogram of protein. So they're even under the threshold that would be the minimum to really optimize muscle building. These are guys that train already. So if we really think about it, if they're consuming lower protein, we already know that they're going to have a lower thermic effect of feeding. But then if we look into the average population, which really in America, 92% of Americans, um, you know, according to a study by Maffetone, are what are called overfat, meaning they have excess body fat that's hindering some aspect of their, their metabolic health. And so if we really look at like the populations that most time they're studying, they're not studying bodybuilders. They're not studying guys that like us that are really into fitness or even our clients. So I think that there's certain things, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's certain levers that I've pulled with certain individuals where I've taken them from an if it fits your macros, really flexible, ultra processed food, predominant diet. And I've switched them to more of a 80, 20, 90, 10 type of split where the foundation of the diet is whole foods. We're utilizing, I'm, I'm increasing their protein content first and foremost. I'm increasing their fiber. I'm, you know, I'm very big. I, I mean, if you could say anything about one of the first things that I, I taught you in my mentorship was I go through every single client's diet when they come on board and I go through chronometer and I go and I backlog all of their micronutrients to see all the deficiencies. And I often, I know that you've noticed this as well, since you've been doing it the last two years is that you'll notice that there's so many people that are fitness minded, but they're nutrient deficient. So whether well, like they're everyone, you know, everyone that you meet. So when we really think about it, whether you're especially if you're in a dieting phase, you're going to be more at a propensity. If you don't eat whole, whole high quality foods, you're going to be more likely and more predisposed to suffer from nutrient deficiencies because there's just less energy coming into the system. But also if you are eating at maintenance or you're eating in a surplus, but you're really flexible with your food choice, you're getting less nutrients per calorie. And so a lot of times what I find is people are overnourished or you know overfed yet undernourished in terms of a micronutrient perspective. So I have people come to me that have been gaining weight the last couple of years, but I look at their micronutrient intake. I'm like, wow, you're deficient in a ton of things that are important vitamins, minerals, and cofactors needed for so many different metabolic processes, so many different hormones. If we look at something like thyroid production, I have so many people that come to me with subclinical hypothyroidism. And essentially it's due to a lack of iodine, selenium, zinc, um, you know, so many micronutrients that are needed for both the production of thyroid hormone in and of itself, but then also the conversion of T4, which is an inactive form of thyroid into metabolically active T3, which exerts its actions on our cells, which is need for metabolism. It's needed for energy expenditure. It's needed for, um, you know, protein transcription. So it, it plays a role in muscle protein synthesis. So these are processes that have been downregulated, especially over continued periods of time. Because a lot of times when someone finds a quality coach like you or I, they've, they've been through years of, it's not their first year. It's not their first rodeo. Right. So it's been years. Even if there's someone that they've been training for years, they've probably been doing things in a suboptimal manner, which is we're pulling all these different levers from a nutritional perspective, a training perspective, a lifestyle, a movement, a stress and sleep management perspective really can raise the bar. But before we tie this up, I do want to hit on a couple other examples from a thermic effective feeding perspective that I think will shock both yourself and the audience. So there's also a few other examples I want to go through on how eating whole foods that specifically contain fiber. So we've been hitting on fiber a lot. And the reason you know I, I included that is that you know, fiber has so many benefits from a satiety regulation perspective, blood glucose management, it has cholesterol lowering benefits, but it also has a high thermic effect of feeding. And so we see that 
in whole food sources that contain fiber, they not only increase the thermic effect of feeding, but also they actually decrease the amount of metabolizable energy we ingest. As we have to realize that just because it can, you know, a food source contains a specific calorie content, it doesn't mean we absorb every calorie in them. As there's energy that's burned off through the process of digestion, which is that thermic effect of feeding. And there's also energy that's excreted through our bowel movements, which a lot of people don't even think about. So that's when we're talking about metabolizable energy. It's actually what you absorb from that food in and of itself. And the best examples of foods that are made of the same base ingredients, but differ in terms of how many calories we absorb from them are nut-based products, especially things containing almonds. So due to the fibrous matrix of nuts like almonds or, or like whole almonds and whole peanuts, we don't absorb as many calories from them as we do when we eat processed nuts like nut butters. So research has found that we actually absorb 48% less metabolizable energy when we eat whole almonds as compared to eating almond butter. And this is due to the fact that almonds being unprocessed you know, the almonds are unprocessed, whereas the nut butter has been highly processed. So foods that are less processed, higher in protein and or higher in, in fiber will have a th higher thermic effect than something processed and refined as processed foods don't require as much energy to digest. So we absorb a higher amount of calories when we eat them. And there's, you know, this is where it's to our advantage to consume more whole foods as they exhibit a higher level of diet-induced thermogenesis. So you burn more energy or more calories in the process of digesting and absorbing them. So someone with a whole food diet is going to have a higher thermic effect of feeding than someone consuming the same exact amount of calories. And that's why, you know, yes, calories, you know, all calories are created equal, but not all food sources are created equal. Cause you, if you are someone that is consuming, like you go from, you know, Jeremiah at 3000 calories eating, you know, processed foods versus Jeremiah eating 3000 calories with high protein and with, you know, unprocessed food sources, whole food sources, you know, it's going to, really benefit you from an energy expenditure perspective, from a health perspective, from a body composition perspective. And that's why it's really important to prioritize building the foundation of our diet on whole foods like lean proteins, fiber containing fruits and vegetables, and then whole food fat sources like nuts. And you know, when we really think about it in the context of a fat loss phase, this is really an easy way to get your body to effortlessly burn more calories just due to your food choices. So this is something you literally, you don't have to go to the gym more. You don't have to worry about, you know, doing more cardio. The only thing you're doing is literally taking the same amount of calories that you're, you're dieting on currently and just increasing the food quality and, and making some simple food swaps. And that could be easy things like going from a nut butter to a whole unprocessed nut. That could be doing something like instead of eating dried fruit or a fruit mix or a, you know, a strawberry jam, going to whole you know unprocessed you know um, fresh strawberries. These are super easy swaps, but it really could benefit people. So it's, it's important to increase awareness about the importance of food quality. And yes, we do need to know there's a fundamental knowledge that needs to be um, gained from people that are going through a fat loss phase or any phase where they need to know that calories count and that energy balance is a governing principle. But we also have to realize that what makes up your energy balance is also essential is also extremely important. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, man. And kind of looking at it as almost like a chain of foods, I think is very helpful too. Like how easy is it to eat 100 calories of strawberry jam versus how easy is it to eat 100 calories of strawberries, right? 100 calories of strawberry jam is like what you put on a one piece of toast. 100 calories of strawberries That's is like a big right ass bowl. 280 grams apparently it's a big ass bowl of strawberries right and it's so much more filling and that's just such a useful lever for people to understand how to pull like all these different things even like if you look at meats right like uh like your steaks all exist on a spectrum right we have like a ribeye or we have a sirloin right one's going to be very calorie dense one's going to be very lean but anyways on that topic was there anything else you wanted to add as far as the differences in sat satiety between these different food sources 
No, absolutely. So satiety is huge because let's think about it. What do people struggle with most on a diet? It's a lack of fullness. So that's a lack of satiety. So satiety is essentially the feeling of fullness you feel after a meal and in between meals, which is a crucial component of dieting as we should look to manage hunger as best as possible, as that's one of the main reasons why people fall off their diet and fail to reach their fat loss goals. And whenever I do a consultation with a potential client, I always go through their dieting history and I will ask them about their previous fat loss phases to determine what has and hasn't work for them and what potential bottlenecks, like I'm really trying to pull back layers of the onion. I want to see what potential bottlenecks either held them back from getting lean or caused them to rapidly regain fat after the diet. And the answer I get nine out of 10 times was basically that they lost the battle to hunger as their diet wasn't built from highly satiating foods. And this is especially true for those who follow the if it fits your macros approach, where they basically just reduce the portion sizes of the hyperplatable foods they were eating before the diet. And so this is an issue because ultra processed foods are far less satiating than unprocessed foods. So they provide less fullness per calorie eaten as compared to whole foods. And this is something that I see personally, I see it with clients, but also we see it in the literature as in the landmark study on the satiety index of common foods, the items with the lowest satiety were all processed hyperplatable items. So if we actually look like the actual index, we see that at the bottom. So the worst foods for satiety were things like chips, croissants, cereal, cookies, uh, candy bars, cake, ice cream, as compared to the foods at the top of the satiety index, which were shown to provide the greatest, what they refer to as fullness factor. And they all happen to be whole unprocessed foods like potatoes, oranges, apples, lean fish, and eggs. And one misconception I find many have is that the fullness you feel from a meal is directly related to the amount of calories you've eaten in that meal. Meaning if you eat a higher calorie meal, you'll feel more fullness from it than you will from a meal that's lower in calories. So they attribute their increased hunger just due to eating less calories during a diet. But this is only part of the equation as fullness and satiety are not just based on how many calories you've ingested, but the amount of space, like the food volume that food has taken up in terms of, you know, how much, you know, expansion it's causing, which then signals to your brain that you've had enough to eat and you are full and then can terminate a meal or you can stop eating. And it's important to realize this, especially when dieting as being selective with your food quality, your food choices, and the selections you make can have a massive impact on your perception of both fullness and satiation. So for example, if you were to eat a thousand calories worth of potato chips, I'm sure you could crush those potato chips. You could get down a thousand calories and still have room for more despite having eaten a really large meal or a, a large you know, portion in terms of you know, the calorie density. However, on the other hand, you could have a 500 calorie meal. And instead of having potato chips for those 500 calories, instead of just reducing the portion size, let's go with a whole food meal. So let's look at a, a lean protein source, a sweet potato and a salad. And I guarantee that you'll feel stuff for hours despite eating half the amount of calories that you did with the chips. And this is why I believe in focusing on food quality. And I set up my nutrition plans in a way, and I, Jeremiah, you're very familiar with this, but I set up my, my plans in a way where whole foods are the foundation of the diet so that I'm able to get clients feeling as full and satiated as possible without going over their calorie budget needed to reach their goal so that they're better able to stick to the plan and thus see the results they desire. And I do this by carefully selecting you know, sources that are lower in energy density, meaning that they have less calories per gram, but have a ton of nutrients and can be in, in higher volumes and amounts, which help to increase the fullness we feel from consuming them. And this is, you know, important, especially during a diet as when you feel full from a meal, you know, you know, how full you feel from a meal is a big determinant of how much you'll want to eat and thus how many, you know, calories you'll end up consuming. So ultimately we want to set ourselves up for success in a fat loss phase. And one way to do so is with our food selection and by choosing aspects of food that are more satiating. So my advice for people would be to look for things like 
high protein and high fiber foods, eating mostly, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying only, but I'm saying mostly whole unrefined foods. And then just simply like, let's add and subtract things. So, you know, if you're eating a, a bunch of unprocessed foods, let's pull back on some of the processed foods and replace them with more fruits, vegetables, and whole food sources. And also let's use less processed additives. So let's pull back on sugar, butter, salad dressings, oils, things that are energy dense, but literally provide no satiety, but they rack up calories and they're taking a percentage of your calorie budget without giving you any uh, return on investment in terms of the satiety that they provide, the fullness they provide, the micronutrients they provide. Absolutely. And that, like, uh, from a real world example of this, like I just recently had a client get extremely lean um for a photo shoot and in her process like crushed it we essentially had her following a meal plan especially the last couple of weeks and then like after that period um there were a couple of days where she was really struggling and she was really beating herself up with like i just like frustrated myself i'm just so much hungrier and it, like things feel so much harder mentally so i dug into her diet and it was like well hey suddenly like we of course had higher calorie intake too and no matter what like after you're pushing for a hard goal like that like sometimes like when the goal disappears it's no matter what it's that period of time is typically a little bit more mentally challenging for most but also 100%. then when i dug in her diet it's like hey these all these carbs that we had from potatoes suddenly we have like 150 grams of carbs coming in daily from rice krispies right to where it's like easy in that position if you don't understand. So it was like, for me, like, okay, this is definitely something I need to educate her more on as far as like how much of a difference we can truly make. Right. Because it, it's easy in that position to feel like it's like, oh, wow. Like I just don't have any willpower anymore. I'm so hungry all the time. I don't know what's wrong with me, but you're setting yourself up to have a much harder time in a situation like that. Dude, I literally just had this conversation earlier today. So shout out to my client, Tanner out in Canada. Um, I just took him through his first photo shoot. Oh, he looked great. He looked phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. You saw the photos. He looked incredible. Very proud of him. However, so I, I increased his, his food intake. So he finished the diet last Thursday. He checked in. We had two days to peak for a photo shoot, which he nailed. And so I told him first three days on the diet, I want you to nail the exact you know, meal plan that I had for you. You know, I always give a meal template essentially, which is a guide to, you know, meals. I, I give people food sources, food swaps, and all those things. And then I said, listen, if he was going to be with his family, I said, listen, if you want to open up and just hit your macros a few days, that's all well and good, but make sure the majority of your diet is whole food sources. What ended up happening was he checked in today. So it's been a week. And so he had a few days where he was away from his home. He didn't have access to his regular kitchen. He was on the road. And so he's, you know, he said, Listen, you know, I'm really, you know, suffering with hunger. It's it's really odd. Like I, I feel hungrier now that you've raised my calories. And I, I've literally raised his calories, you know, about 900 to a thousand calories. Right. And he was like, I'm I'm dealing with worse hunger now than I did when I was in the diet. And I'm just really confused. He's never been that lean as well. So I, I try to explain that process, but then I had him send over the food sources that he was utilizing. And here was the thing. He was using things that were labeled as healthy. So your protein bars, your granola bars. However, we had this conversation earlier this morning and I said, listen, I understand that these are things conceptually you think is good because they have a lot of whole food ingredients, whole grains, things of that sort. They have protein in them. However, we have to look at the energy density, which is something we're going to cover next. However, you know, in terms of the energy density, things like granola bars, things like protein bars, we look at them and they have 200 more cal or 200 or more calories per a 50 gram serving. However, if we were to get 50, a 50 gram serving of strawberries, you know what that is? That's like 18 calories. So for the same amount of food, you know, food weight, however, a much different volume, you're getting, you know, one, you know, uh, eighth of the calories essentially. And so I, I really tried to break this down to him. I said, listen, let's go back to a lot of the whole food sources that you were utilizing. We can have more flexibility in, in terms of changing things in and out. However, I don't want you 
backlogging, like if you had whole food, uh, protein source, if you want to use a fattier cut of meat or something like that, that's still whole food, it's intact, it's hard, it, it requires you know chewing because what he was noticing was he was just mowing through these protein bars and these things thinking that they were health foods, but they were racking up calories and then they were taking up his calorie budget and leaving him famished. So despite things being labeled as healthy, it, it's not, I'm not trying to make this dichotomous relationship between unprocessed and processed foods and one's healthy and one's not healthy. I don't believe in a black and white aspect of nutrition. I think that this is a topic that's very nuanced, but we really should look at the energy density, which is something, you know, if you want, we could dive right into. Yeah. Let's go ahead and get into that. Then just kind of the difference in energy density between these different quality of food sources. All right. So just a little background on energy density for the audience is energy density or calorie density refers to how many calories are in a gram of a food source. And I think this is a major component of dieting for fat loss that many overlook as most will speak about the calories and macros a food contains, but they don't touch on the actual calorie density of those same foods. And the thing with energy density of our foods is it impacts so many aspects of our diet, including how much we want to eat, our ability to manage hunger during a diet, our micronutrient status, and our ability to adhere to a calorie deficit which all impact the success we have in a fat loss phase. And like I was just mentioning about my, my client Tanner, also the body composition results we attain and can maintain. And so most rankings of the energy density of foods range from you know what are considered very low or low energy density foods to high energy density foods. So in a fat loss phase, we want to bias more of our food selection towards those low energy density food sources as these sources allow us to get a much larger amount of food volume for a lesser amount of calories. So if we were to look at like, I'll give you some examples of lower energy density food sources. We have things like cucumbers, carrots, which you know I'm a huge fan of, fresh berries like strawberries and blueberries, apples, and salad, which all have a very low calorie density, meaning for each gram of food, they have under 0.6 calories or less, essentially. So very low. And then on the high calorie density side of the spectrum, we have items like your peanut butter, your potato chips, croissants, tortilla chips, or, or granola bars, like I mentioned previously, which all have a higher calorie density in comparison to the low energy density foods. And even these foods have between four to nine calories per gram of food weight. So we also have vastly different energy densities between similar foods based on how they're prepared and also how they're processed. So if we just look at food quality, we'll see vastly different amounts of the same foods in terms of their energy density. So on average, we actually look at processed foods. They have 2.3 calories per gram as compared to minimally processed foods, which have an average of 1.1 calories per gram. So processed foods have more than double the calorie content per gram than whole foods. So with higher intakes of processed foods, we see higher calorie intakes. As even if you were eating the exact same amount of food weight to get full, you'd be getting at least double the amount of calories. So if we compare, you know, an unprocessed, you know, unprocessed versus processed uh, food sources, if we look at like a baked potato to a, uh, a potato chip, a boiled potato has an energy density of around 0.8 calories per gram. So a hundred gram serving of potato, it provides 80 calories. However, if we're to take that same amount from the Lay's potato chip, that's going to have an energy density of 5.5 calories per gram and 550 calories for that same 100 gram serving. So when we look at the comparison between the two, the potato chips are seven times as energy dense or calorie dense as potatoes. So you would have to eat seven times the amount of calories from potato chips just to get the same amount of food weight from an unprocessed potato. Another example that I often go through with clients is helping them determine what to add to like protein shakes. This is a big thing. Like I always talk about this with clients, like protein smoothies. Um, and really the, the emphasis on this is they want, you know, they're having trouble hitting their protein goal, but also, you know, they're in a fat loss phase. We're trying to conserve calories and they want to make something, you know, I'm trying to help them keep it low calorie, but satiating. And most of the times when I, I speak with people, I find that people tend to make what could be a low calorie, high volume filling shake packed with protein and micronutrients and polyphenols in them. 
and lots of water content, if they were to go with like, say, a protein fruit smoothie into this calorie bomb filled shake filled with nut butters, that's always like the issue that I run into is with the nut butters. It's always people like throwing in scoops of nut butter and thinking it's healthy because they have protein powder in that. So I'll often speak with clients about being more selective with what they add to their shake. So say a client is using 50 grams of protein powder in a smoothie. If we look at most protein powders, like that's going to be between 220 and 240 calories for those two scoops of protein right there. Well, what you add next can either keep it low calorie or make it much higher calorie. So in comparison, I the, the comparison I often present them with is the difference in energy density between strawberries and between peanut butter, because both are great to add into shakes. They're going to taste great. They're going to really mix well with, with, you know, a protein source. And if we look at the difference, like a hundred grams of strawberries is around 36 calories, but a hundred grams of peanut butter is over... 630 calories. So for the same amount of food weight, you can either go with the strawberries, which have something like 118th the amount of calories that the peanut butter does and provide more fiber, more micronutrients, and a much greater effect on satiety because they have more food volume. Now, keep in mind, food weight and food volume are two different things. If you were to look at 100 grams of peanut butter on a scale, it's going to be the small little dish. It's going to be the same weight on the scale. But if you were to get 100 grams of strawberries, it's like a bowl. And so you can either go with the lower energy density item, which is the strawberries, going to leave you fuller. It's going to leave you with much less calories. Or you could go with the same amount of food weight from peanut butter and get 18 times the amount of calories and turn that low calorie smoothie into a weight gain shake, essentially. And then also, when we look at energy density, we have to realize that like... Really, if you are to include more low energy density foods into your diet, it's going to make things easier because when you, you get used to eating or you really bias low energy density foods, it can be really advantageous because when you're really hungry during a diet, eating something low in energy density, like a cup of cucumbers or a big ass salad, isn't going to break the calorie rank, but it will you know, help in terms of, of satiety as it provides a ton of food volume and fullness for a small amount of calories. Whereas if you are to choose processed foods when you're super hungry, you're going to consume far more calories due to the fact that they have a far higher calorie density and also have less protein, less fiber, and less water content. So they provide far less satiety for the same amount of calories, which often results in you feeling hungry once you finish like your allotted amount. So say you have a you know 500 calorie meal and you go with 500 calories from unprocessed foods and it really keeps you full. But then in the other instance, you decide you know what, I'm going to go with super tasty foods. And you go with these hyperplatable processed foods. And for the same amount of calories that you could have gotten full with, you're no longer full with, which often results in you consuming a far greater amount of calories from them just to suppress your hunger. And also when we look at like the qualities of processed foods, they're also softer and easier to eat, which increases both our eating rate and our chewing rate. So we, we go through it quicker, which leads us to consume more calories per minute and per meal before our brain. Remember, there's a, a, a time delay between our brain, our, our gastrointestinal uh, receptors sending a signal to the brain like to stop eating. So if you're eating quicker, and you're also eating more calories per minute because you're eating something that has a higher energy density, it's going to, within the time that it takes, say 15 to 20 minutes that it takes your brain to actually receive the signal that you're full, you're going to have eaten far greater amount of calories within that same amount of time as compared to if you had taken and maybe done a water preload, then done a salad and, you know, to start off your meal and then had a lean protein source, a complex carb source and some vegetables. So there's this massive discrepancy, especially in satiety. And this is, you know, both satiety and energy density, which I really think if people paid more attention to, it'd be really advantageous. Absolutely. And again, I think so many people see this as just like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I'm not more disciplined or I don't have more willpower. I just get so hungry. And it's so much more about like, not necessarily trying to be more disciplined or have more willpower, but like, Hey, you could do such a better job setting yourself up for success with your dietary choices. So to kind of wrap this up, just break it down for us. Like how does the total quality of our diet impact our fat loss results here? Any final thoughts? 
Absolutely, my man. Always, always have other things to add. So, you know, when it comes to fat loss, we know that energy balance is key, is like the key underlying principle that governs our ability to lose body fat, meaning we need to be burning more calories than we're consuming. However, often that results in many taking like this narrow-minded approach that we've been hitting on, where they only focus on the quantity aspect of their diet in terms of the calories and the macros and disregard the quality aspect of nutrition, which is why so many people struggle during fat loss phases. And although our total calorie intake serves as a foundation to our diet, we cannot overlook the quality of the foods we make up our diet of and expect to succeed in a fat loss phase and beyond that fat loss phase in and of itself. And so the quantity of the nutrients we take in should be viewed as the first rung in the hierarchy of importance when setting up a fat loss uh, focused diet. But the next thing we need to focus on is the quality of those nutrients, which is an important step that many overlook, especially as if it fits your macros has gotten more and more popular over the years. And honestly, if I go back 10 years when I first started coaching or even beyond that, or, you know, before that, especially when I first started like competing, if it fits your macros wasn't as prevalent, and I don't remember people struggling with hunger as much, and it may be just the circles that I was in because I was in a bodybuilding crowd and most of us ate whole foods. And that was an extreme manner in and of itself. And I wouldn't recommend going to like a days where I just ate tilapia and veggies. But at the same time, we have to find a balance between both. We have to find a balance between having enough flexibility, but it's not a just like, you know, a fuck it mentality where everything is flexible and you have to be super flexible and you, you know, um, you play macro chetris every day and you don't have a consideration for structured flexibility. And so really when we look at a lot of people that utilize, you know, the standard if it fits your macros approach where they're super flexible with their food choice, this, this limits a lot of individuals' abilities to effectively manage their hunger, stick to their calorie target and adhere to the diet long-term enough to effectively lose body fat, as well as to maintain that fat loss once the diet is over, which is why some of the most important aspects of nutrition are food choices, the quality of those choices, and the micronutrients those sources contain. And this is something that actually, we just had recent research, um, you know, come out and bear more and more. So there's just a recent uh, randomized control trial that came out last year that looked at two different diets that varied in their uh, food quality and nutrient density to see the effects that each would have on both fat loss and metabolic health outcomes. And in this study, essentially what they did was they took individuals and put them on one of two calorie equated diets for a 12 week fat loss phase. And in both diets, they put people into a 25% calorie deficit. So they were, they were calorie match in terms of the deficit, but they also match fat, alcohol, and sodium intake. So the main difference was in the diet quality and the nutrient density. And in one group, they had them diet using a higher quality or higher nutrient quality dietary approach where their food sources were mostly higher nutrient density, less processed and mostly whole foods. And the higher quality diet group had a bit higher protein intake, fiber intake, and then also had less fructose in their diet. They also had a higher percentage of their daily fat intake coming from you know, very healthy sources. So they con contained essential fatty acids and mostly monounsaturated fatty acid sources. Whereas in the other group, they had them diet using what they considered or they labeled as a lower nutrient quality diet that used more processed foods that had lower nutrient density. And in this group, they had the same amount of total fat intake as compared to the unprocessed group, but they had saturated fats, which made up the majority of their fat intake. This group also had less essential fatty acids, a bit less protein, and then had more of their carb intake from simple sugars and fructose. And in both groups, they had to maintain their levels of physical activity. So nothing else changed. It was just the calorie deficit in themselves. They just want to see over the course of 12 weeks, like what is the effects of these different you know, quality diets, despite both inducing the same deficit. And so although calories were equated between conditions in both diets, they were designed to be nutritionally adequate. The micronutrient 
intake of these diets were vastly different. So if you actually look at like, they had some, some subsources on the, the site itself where they went through like the different intakes of different vitamins, minerals, um, um, you know, omega threes, omega sixes, and it was vastly different. And at the end of the 12 week fat loss diet, they found that the higher nutrient quality diet lost more total weight than the low quality diet with the high quality diet group losing an average of 18.5 pounds as compared to the low quality diet group losing a little under 14 pounds. So there was about a 4.5 pound difference. Those on the high quality diet also lost a significant amount of both subcutaneous and visceral body fat compared to low quality diet and also had a far greater reduction in their actual fat cell size. And then they also, at the end of this entire study, they did like a, a perspective analysis at the end of the study and they divided subjects based on their degree of insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. So they kind of categorized them based on their blood markers. And this analysis showed that those who were insulin sensitive subjects and those that were both insulin sensitive and followed that high quality diet actually lost this even significantly greater amount of weight than the insulin sensitive subjects who were put on the low quality diet. And so what they found was the insulin sensitive subjects who followed the high quality diet lost an average of 8.5 uh, pounds more than those on the low quality diet, which is even greater uh, difference between the two diets. And this study just reinforces the advantage of using higher quality nutrient dense diet composed of, you know, whole unprocessed food sources, especially during a diet, and also fits in with a lot of what I've seen personally, like in terms of, I always say this, this comment, I say it to you, I say it on social media, I always say a healthy body is a responsive body. And we see that because those with greater insulin sensitivity who followed a higher quality diet saw far greater fat loss than those who didn't. So it's both, let's, let's focus on your metabolic health, but then also let's focus on an intelligent approach to fat loss, which includes, yes, nailing your calorie intake, but also considering your food quality so that we can ensure that you have enough satiety, enough fullness, enough appetite regulation, but also the important micronutrients and the uh, vitamins, minerals, and cofactors that are needed to run all the internal processes and that are going to be able to put you in a position to succeed, which is the biggest thing that we as coaches want for our clients. So when, you know, I, I often speak with clients about the importance of food quality. Yes, I want you to nail your macros. I want you to nail your calorie targets. However, I also want you to be really cognizant and intelligent about your food source selection because we can't have one without the other. Absolutely, man. Um, I think that's such an incredible way to wrap it up, especially with the study where, again, just the high food quality group losing 8.5 pounds more on average. That's a crazy change for a pretty short time period as well. 12 weeks. And and when they didn't have, they weren't insulin sensitive, it was 4.5 pounds difference. However, just the fact that they had their metabolic health in check, and this was improvements that they saw throughout the course of the 12 weeks, right. those who had better increases in insulin sensitivity and also went into the this uh, study in a much healthier position, that's another thing. Like that's just another um, reinforcement of the fact that we shouldn't drop clients into a diet. And often I, I say this all the time. I'm, if you come to me and you're just trying to go into the fat loss phase, we're not going to work together because I'm going to make sure that I put you in a position to succeed. And that's why I always do a primer phase. That is to set your body up and to potentiate the progress that we're going to have in subsequent phases and to make sure that you're in a position to succeed both from a habits perspective and an internal health perspective. And then overall, so, you know, that's not only something that I've seen with hundreds of clients over the years, I've seen it in my own personal practice, but now we have research from 2022, reinforcing a lot of the things that I've seen in the trenches. Absolutely, man. Well, I know you have to run, so let's go ahead and wrap it up here, but incredible episode. I'm sure the audience will find this super valuable. Before I let you go, anything new you want to plug? No, guys, as always, you guys can reach me at um, you know social media, which is at Brandon DeCruz underscore. My email is bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. And then if you guys are a fan of the podcast, which obviously you love Jeremiah, so be you know feel free to uh, reach over and listen to mine, which is the Chasing Clarity Podcast. 
Incredible. All of those linked up in the show notes, including the Chase and Clarity podcast. So as always, man, I appreciate you coming on and we'll catch you soon.